Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, December 22nd. Israel has been at war for 77 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FTD Morning Brief. This program started out as an experiment. I had been briefing journalists and bureaucrats and staffers every morning during the first month of the war. I was just repeating back to them what I had learned every day by waking up early and tuning into media from the region. And those briefings were getting repetitive. So we came up with the idea for this, the FTD Morning Brief, one brief, one time, it saves you time, it saves me time, and I'm glad you're tuning in. This morning, I'll be joined by Hussein Abdul Hussein, my FTD colleague who's out there every day defending Israel, often to the anger and disbelief of many of his fellow Arabs. We'll talk to him about what life has been like since October 7th, and he'll also talk about what's happening in Lebanon and Iraq. He's lived in both places. But before we hear from Hussein, let's take a quick look at the news. Hamas has balked at a new ceasefire deal. This is obviously a blow to the hostage families, but I believe it could be good news for the IDF, given that the war momentum appears to be on its side. Discussions continue about reviving the deal, which could include the release of some 40 hostages in exchange for two weeks of calm. The IDF says it has killed 2,000 Hamas fighters in December and more than 8,000 since the war broke out. That's not quite half of the total Hamas army, but one gets a distinct sense that Hamas is losing steam. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley called upon Hamas patrons Qatar, Iran, and Turkey to take in Gaza refugees. She's 100% right to say so, and I might add that she is echoing an article I co-authored with FDD CEO Mark Dubowitz in the Wall Street Journal on October 15th. Did she read it? I don't care, so long as she holds those state sponsors of Hamas to account. Greece joined the Red Sea Maritime Coalition, known as Operation Prosperity Guardian. This is good to see. Greece is an important pillar of the, uh, the East Med Alliance. Uh, but Israel media reports uh, today that suggest that maritime traffic to Eilat is down a whopping 85%. This obviously cannot continue. And speaking of Eilat, an Iran-backed militia fired a drone toward Eilat today. It was shot down over Jordan. Let's hope this is not a sign of things to come. And finally, the Israeli Air Force struck a car today in the town of Rafah. Three people were killed there in Gaza. No word on who was targeted, but strikes like these always get my attention. Moving on now to your top three big stories. Headline one, with the collapse of the latest proposed hostage deal, Qatar's role in this conflict is now thrown into question. Here's the deal. The Qataris have been saying for months that they maintain strong financial and institutional ties with Hamas so that it can be helpful during crises like this one. They say the U.S. asked them to do this. Well, that's simply not true. They were Hamas sponsors before this disturbing arrangement was made. And now we need to ask ourselves, if Qatar can't get deals done with Hamas, is it really helping? Or is it just a state sponsor of terrorism? You know what I think. It's still possible that we'll see a deal and Qatar may broker it, but that doesn't change my view. Qatar is a state sponsor of terrorism. 
this tiny nothing of a country with 300,000 people and more money than Allah has for years been providing funds and safe haven to Hamas, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, the Muslim Brotherhood, and more. And somehow the United States puts up with it. Maybe it's because they gave us a big, shiny airbase. Maybe it's because they inject huge amounts of cash into Washington. But this war has made it clear that Qatar is a serious liability, and one can only hope that our leaders begin to hold their leaders to account. Headline two. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is earning praise for his defense of Israel on Wednesday. Here's what we know. America's highest diplomat said this the other day, and I quote, No one is demanding that Hamas stop hiding behind civilians, lay down its arms, and surrender. This is over tomorrow if Hamas does that. How can it be that there are no demands made of the aggressor and only demands made of the victim? End quote. Indeed, Mr. Secretary, kudos. You said exactly what needed to be said. Okay, but do you know what? This is something that should have been said every single day for the past 77 days, and it hasn't. Moreover, it should be the policy of the United States government to squeeze the state sponsors of Hamas, like Iran and Turkey and Qatar, relentlessly to demand a Hamas surrender. That should be accompanied by the release of the rest of the hostages. I mean, look, we're still a superpower the last time I checked. Why don't we throw that around more? It just surprises me. It seems that we like to pressure our loyal allies, like the Israelis, a lot more than we like to pressure our adversaries or our unreliable allies. Yeah, I call them frenemies. And finally, headline three, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to get Egypt to take in Gaza refugees. Here's what we know. Bibi has appealed to President Biden to turn the screws on Egypt, and so far, this has been a lost cause. The Egyptians have stated repeatedly that they will not take part in the displacement of Gazans. They say this is a red line for the Palestinian cause. But here's the thing. There is something very old-school Arab nationalist about the Egyptian position. It's dysfunctional. The government of Egypt is so committed to the Palestinian cause that it seems okay with allowing more Palestinians to die in this war. There were rumors early on that the, uh, in this war that cash-strapped Egypt was offered billions of dollars to take in refugees, and yet it still refused. It's a tragedy, really. Gazans suffered terribly under Hamas rule, and now they're suffering from well-meaning people who won't lift a finger to help their plight. Okay, those are your headlines. I am now pleased to welcome Hussein Abdul Hussein. He's a fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's lived in Lebanon. He's lived in Iraq. He's a Shiite Muslim. He reads Arabic. He reads and speaks Hebrew. And he supports Israel's right to defend itself. Since this program is PG-13, we will not be reading some of the tweets that he has received since October 7th. A lot of foul language there. But we will talk to him about a range of other relevant topics. Welcome, Hussein. Good morning, John. Well, Hussein, I obviously have known you well. You've been with us for a while now, but I think maybe it might be helpful for our audience to hear from you just a bit about your background. Just give us a few minutes on, on who you are and where you came from. Well, quickly, I'm half Lebanese, half Iraqi, and my family had to leave Iraq in the early 1980s because of Saddam Hussein. And like many, like the majority of Iraqis, actually, we grew up 
thinking of Saddam as the problem that, you know, if, if he's gone, our lives will improve. And then the moment came when the superpower showed up to topple Saddam. And all of a sudden, I, I saw many of the what, what, you, what we call the Arab Street, the, image, the imaginary Arab Street, just turning against this idea. And this was the time when I parted ways with all the idea of Arab nationalism or pan-Arabism or any kind of, of, of nationalist sentiment that was in the region. And uh, I endorsed the uh, uh, thought of, of, of liberty, freedom, and democracy. And I've, I've been doing so since. And for, for doing this, of course, you know, I expect to uh, receive a lot of heat. Now, thankfully, I'm not the only one uh, in this part of the world that, uh, you know, that there are so many people who have been much braver than me who have been doing it while, while living in Beirut and in Baghdad. And many of them have been uh, assassinated and many of them were dear friends and close friends to me. Uh, and, and many of them are still there and are still fighting the fight for liberty and freedom and, and democracy. And what I do is that I, I just try to give them as much support uh, as, as, as I can. Well, we thank you for that. Uh, tell us a little bit about what life has been like since 10-7. You've been getting quite a bit of uh, a response, haven't you? Well, that's, it, it's an unfortunate response. The blowback has been enormous. And, you know, sometimes even in private spaces and, and private spaces, for example, the WhatsApp group of, of people from my from my high school in Beirut, even there, I see things are being censored. People who think or, or speak like me are, are, are just being silent most of the time, even though they send me private messages saying, you know, we agree we agree that there's no amount of injustice in the world that would justify what Hamas did, uh, that would justify Hamas killing 1,200 Israelis on 10-7. So there are many people who think this. There are very few people who say it out loud in the region. Uh, and, you know, of course, I say it out loud and uh, I get all the heat. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't engage in terms of returning heat like ad hominem, but I just try to engage in terms of debate whenever I find someone who's willing to respectfully engage in debate, even if, you know, even if they're taking the side of Hamas, I try to engage in debate and, and try to say, you know, what you're doing is not justified and it's against the interest of, of Palestinians and, and, you know, all the Arabs who support this line. Uh, what I advocate for most of the time is introspection, Arab introspection. I think this is not really widespread but, but I try to uh, spread the word as much as I can. Yeah, it's an uphill battle. Um, well, let me ask you, I mean, you've lived in Lebanon. Um, can you just describe for, uh, for us right now what's happening there? It seems as if Hezbollah is intent upon taking the entire country to war. We know that the last time this happened, it was utterly devastating. In fact, one would argue that Lebanon has never recovered from the last war in 2006. Do you see things sort of moving inevitably in that direction? Can we still pull back? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think everyone in Lebanon still remembers how devastating the 2006 war, even partisans of Hezbollah. But the point here is that like how Hamas behaved, we're not sure that the leader of Hezbollah himself, we're not sure that Nasrallah is as rational to remember what happened and, 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 you know, to not go into such an adventure again. Uh, had he 
been rational, I don't think he would have escalated the situation on the border and started war, like he said on October 8th. Now, I know that uh, at least 40 to 50 percent of the Lebanese oppose Hezbollah, uh, even before the war, oppose going to war. Even those who support, uh, uh, you know, the Palestinians in any kind of form, they do not support going to war. Uh, even, you know, parts of, of the supporters of Hezbollah don't support going to war. They understand that this would be very costly for the Lebanese at large. But, you know, whatever these people think, at the end of the day, there's no state in Lebanon. Uh, there's no president. Uh, the presidency is vacant. The prime minister position, uh, he's been acting prime minister long before, uh, I mean, since the election of parliament, which happened over a year and a half ago. So technically, there's no state. And technically, might is right in Lebanon, and Hezbollah is the strongest, and Nasrallah is the strongest guy, and he can twist whatever arm, and he can uh, suppress whatever uh, a dissident voice inside the country, and he's taking the country in whichever direction he wants. Uh, at this point, you know, what I hear is that uh, most of the Lebanese are really scared that war is, is coming. Uh, many of them who live in the South have, have moved, so there's a, a lot of displacements, I think, close to 80,000, 100,000 of, of Lebanese have moved. So this doesn't say that, this doesn't suggest to me that these people support uh, Nasrallah or Hezbollah, but I, you know, they don't think that there's much they can do to stop him. So another place you've lived is Iraq. And I, you get a sense that maybe Iraq is also heading in a similar direction, uh, perhaps not as catastrophic, but we've seen multiple attacks against American bases in Iraq from Shiite militias that are based there. There's a story this morning that uh, one of these uh, PMUs, the Popular Mobilization Units, that they fired a, a drone uh, at a lot and that was shot down uh, over the skies of Jordan. Do you get a sense that things are also spinning out of control in Iraq or is that more stable? I think it's hard for us to get a beat on this right now, but you, you're pretty well plugged in. So let us know what you think. Well, Iraq has the advantage of having an actual state that exists thanks to American support. So they have a, a president, they have a prime minister, and you know they have a cabinet. Uh, they have uh, a lot of oil revenue. Uh, so uh, there's some sort of, of someone who's in charge, even though the, the pro-Iran militias are trying to uh, uh, behave like Nasrallah does in Lebanon. Now, one major difference between uh, Iraq and, and Lebanon is that the Iraqi sentiment is overwhelmingly not supportive of Palestinians, and this is reminiscent of the days of Saddam Hussein, because the majority of Iraqis, like I said when I started this conversation, uh, did not support Saddam, and Saddam was overwhelmingly supportive of Palestinians, and even he, he even used Palestinians as mercenaries to support his regime against Iraqis. So to, to test my hy hypothesis from time to time, uh, I uh, photo capture uh, groups, Palestinian groups that support Saddam. Now, most of the time, if you go to a, a, a pro-Hamas, pro-Gaza uh, rally, you will find pictures of Saddam Hussein. So what I do is that I photo capture these images. I send them to WhatsApp groups, Iraqi WhatsApp groups of friends and relatives and cousins. And, 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 and on many of these groups, there are people who, who support Al-Hashd al-Shabi, who support you know, this, this line that's against the, the government of Iraq. And even those uh, are not happy, uh, are not supportive of, 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 of the Palestinians or Gaza. So in Iraq, the popular support is even much less than in Lebanon. Uh, and I see whatever you, 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 whatever you see, 
is most of the time, you know, the militia is just behaving on their own to the extent that the prime minister himself said, you know, you guys have to tone it down. And, and they started uh, photo montaging uh, uh, posters of the prime minister with a silencer pointed at, at his head, signed by Ashab Ahl Kaf, which is one of the uh, pro-Iran militias. Threatening indeed. Um, last question for you, Hussein. Um, you're in Dubai right now. Um, what are you hearing from Arab intellectuals about normalization with Israel and maybe what happens after this war is over? Well, it was a pleasant surprise for me. I mean, you know, I, I expected things to be a bit different. And to my surprise, when you're talking to people in private and these intellectuals and, you know, even though they're not going out because they understand that there's a lot of social shaming and sometimes that gets to physical uh, threat if you're from uh, Lebanon or Iraq or even from Ramallah, you know, interestingly, I've, I've been hanging out with intellectuals from Ramallah and, and they're not far away from what I'm saying, you know, they're, they're not supportive of Hamas. They understand that the Palestinian Authority is corrupt. Uh, they understand that there's a lot of heavy lifting that they should do as Arabs, a lot of introspection that's needed and reform. Uh, and they're not happy with it, with the way things are going. And this was a pleasant surprise to me because this is something that you cannot really gauge if you're only watching uh, Arab media, or especially if you're watching U.S. media. So, you know, this is some, this is some sort of an insider look at things. And I, I, I was happy that things looked this way in these circles in Dubai. And again, uh, many of those are Emiratis, but also many of them are Palestinians and Iraqis and Lebanese and Syrians, and, you know, Dubai is such a cosmopolitan place for all these Arabs. All right. Well, keep up your great work. Thank you, Hussein Abdul Hussein, for joining us today on the FTD Morning Brief. Thank you, John. Okay. Here are the other stories that FTD is following today. My colleague, Ivana Stradner, is tracking a disinformation campaign against Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky falsely claiming he became a U.S. citizen and bought a fancy villa in Florida. Ivana has dated the origin of this Russian disinformation to February 2022. France 24 has debunked key elements of this story, but it's a good reminder. Don't just trust the stuff you read on the Internet, folks. It's messy out there. Uh, the Justice Department this week uh, indicted Samuel El-Reda for his role in the Iran-backed bombing of the AMIA Jewish Community Center in Argentina in 1994. My colleague Toby Dershowitz has worked this file for decades. She's digging into the indictment right now, and she's calling for El-Reda's apprehension and extradition. Another good reminder here, justice delayed is still justice. And finally, FTD. Chief Executive Mark Dubowitz has a new letter to the editors of the Wall Street Journal today, reiterating why we are long overdue for a massive overhaul in America's Iran policy. FDD has been saying this for years, but maybe, just maybe, President Biden will finally add, deter the Islamic Republic of Iran to his list of 2024 New Year's resolutions. Okay, now for a brief announcement. The news won't stop piling up over the holidays, but the FTD Morning Brief will be taking a short hiatus. We'll be back in the new gear with all the news you missed with our next show on Wednesday, January 3rd. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with all of FTD's latest analysis at FTD.org and on X at FTD. I'll take this last opportunity of the year to remind you that FTD is a nonprofit organization. 
Our work is made possible by patriotic Americans who sleep better at night knowing that my colleagues and I are working around the clock to track and hold to account those who seek to inflict harm upon America and other free nations. If you want to join this fight, please do make your tax-deductible investment before the year's end at ftd.org invest. Thank you for joining us today. Happy holidays. We'll see you again next year. Until then, I'm Jonathan Chanzer signing off for FDD. Thank you.